This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with JP Chauvet, CEO of Lightspeed Commerce, a unified point-of-sale payments platform that's raised over a billion dollars in funding. JP, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Good morning. No problem. So to kick things off, could we just maybe start with a quick summary of who you are and just a bit more about your background? Yeah, so my name is Jean-Paul, so JP Chauvet. I'm the CEO of Lightspeed. And just to give you a bit of background, so I'm a mixed background. So mother is Irish, Scottish, dad is French, Lebanese. Grew up in Africa, and I've literally worked in four continents. But I think just giving you a bit of background, my my first job was product management. And um, maybe for the past easy 20 years, I've been scaling companies. And people see me as the go-to-market guy when you want to scale a company. And I've had exact positions for, yeah, at least 20 years now. Tell us about your time in Africa. Where did you live? So I was uh, born in Lagos, Nigeria. So my parents were in uh, civil engineering and they were working in Africa. So I'm born there and uh, spent my first 11 years in Lagos. What was that like? Oh, for me, it was a golden childhood. You know, Nigeria is now a dangerous country. But when I grew up, you know, we were close to the beach and it was a really nice life. Yeah, and my dad was basically doing uh, big civil engineering work, had a company doing that. And uh, so I think a very, very fun childhood. And we would spend our summers in Ireland, where my mom comes from. And growing up, did you ever you know, think that you would be a CEO and an executive? Was that ever on your mind? Or what were your aspirations when you were younger? Yeah, I always knew I wanted to do my own thing. So I guess maybe my mom would say I've always been a commercial brain. You know, at heart, I love quickly understanding situations and how to, you know, where there's a gap. So I think I always knew that I wanted to be a leader for sure, to be successful. And I worked really hard for that. And I think in my DNA, I always had a good ability to figure out when there's a gap and fill in the gap. And even, you know, when I was at school or when I was at university, I was always finding ways to fill a gap and make money doing so. Amazing. Now, a few other questions we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a leader. First question is, what CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of people I admire. You might not know, but Lightspeed, we, you know, the ecology and the environment is really important to us. And so I want to say Boyan Slat. I don't know if you've heard of him or you know him. He's a, he founded a company called The Ocean Cleanup. Very young guy, 26 years old, and it's a really successful project. And his goal is to completely remove all the plastic from the ocean. And you might have seen, you know, he does these huge boats that basically, and I think he's at version four or five now of the boat. And his objective is to clean the ocean. And he, he received incredible funding, like north of, uh, I think it's 40 or $50 million of funding. And I admire him because I, I think from a very early age, he said from the age of 16, if you read a bit about him, he went to Greece and he, he went into the water and realized, oh my God, there's more plastic than fish. And I relate to him because I, I kind of had the same experience. When I was a kid, I would go diving in the south of France, in the Mediterranean. And the ocean was full of incredible fish and corals and everything. And very recently, I bought a house in the south of France and I just close to where I used to dive when I was a kid. And I went diving and I realized there's nothing in there anymore. So there are very few fish. All the corals are gone. There's a ton of plastic. So 
maybe that's why I admire him. It's like, I think somebody needs to do something about it. And I admire the fact that, you know, being really young and full of energy, he's managed to get a ton of funding and he's actually doing something about it. Yeah, I've seen him in the media over the last few years, and it's always so inspirational when you see someone younger than you doing such amazing things. So it's definitely been fun to watch. And yeah, such a great call out. Yeah. Now, something else that we like to ask about are books. So we took this from someone else, but they defined it or they called it a quake book. And they defined a quake book as a book that just like rocks you to your core and really influences how you think about the world. Do any quake books come to mind for you and just books that had a major impact on you? Yeah, or maybe I'm, it's going to give you my age here, but uh, the book that changed everything for me was Crossing the Chasm. And it was the book in, you know, call it the year 2000s, if you were, you know, a tech startup. And I, even to this day, when I look at Lightspeed, I still have this view and I still have this view of early adopters and, and your laggers. And, and we've adapted even at Lightspeed, our product strategy based on that. So yeah, I think it's a book that marked my evolution as a leader. And I think it's... um. Even though times have changed, it's still an extremely valuable book for anybody. It's amazing how relevant that book still is. I think it was originally published like the late 80s or early 90s, something crazy like that. And I read it for the first time maybe five years ago. And yeah, first I was like, what's this book going to know about innovation? It's too outdated, but I was completely wrong. And it's just incredibly relevant today, which is amazing, I think. Yeah. And uh, I think it's all about, you know, timing. And often for me, when you... So I've done a number of early stage and growth and, you know, all kinds of companies I was leading. And yeah, I think timing is everything and ensuring that you're there at the right time and uh, with the right audience, I think is, uh, is really important. And I think when you apply this to even product roadmaps inside of companies, it's still extremely valuable. And um, yeah, great, great book. And to switch gears a little bit here, I'd love to dive a bit more into the company. So can you just tell us a bit more about what Lightspeed Commerce does? Yeah. So I've been at Lightspeed for 11 years and I joined, I think we were about 40 employees and today we're about 3000 employees globally. And it's always been the same. So it starts with the mission and, and the mission really is to package technology to help small independent retailers and restaurateurs thrive and compete with big box. And that was, uh, you know, in the early days, I used to say, you know, when people ask me, what do you do? I, I used to respond, we save cities. And everybody's like, wow, what, what, what do you do to save cities? And I used to say this because I do think that what makes the texture of a city are these retailers and restaurateurs that are mainly independent, that create this unique experience that make people want to travel, want to, and they do good actually to communities within cities. So what do we do? We basically package technology. We call it a commerce platform, which is an engine that helps restaurateurs and retailers run their business in the cloud. And we do everything. Of course, we do the payments, the cash register side. We also do everything related to back office, which is employee management, of course, ingredient and inventory management. We manage all of the customers, history of purchase, all the transactions, all the email marketing. So we are a platform that helps small businesses. And what do you see on the front end? You see a, or you see a mobile device, or you see a, you know, a web browser. I think the best way to impersonate this is, you know, when you go to stores, where the agents are mobile, they can check you out anywhere, you know, like in an Apple store, uh, when you go to stores where they know when you've purchased something online and, and when you return to store that you're the same consumer, it's often uh, light speed powered. And actually in the early days of the company, the reason why we became so successful is that Apple very early on when we were small, basically brought us, you know, in their ecosystem. And if you would go to an Apple store, you know, roughly 10 years ago and say, hey, 
I want to have an Apple experience from my own store, they would tell you, oh, go and talk to Lightspeed. They'll provide you the Apple experience. And so that's how we, we got started. And still to this day, that's what we do. So it's basically a commerce platform to help small independent retailers and restaurateurs. And what's the competitive landscape look like then? Is it like companies like Square that you're competing against or who are you competing against? Yeah, it is. But, you know, the market is huge. So I'm just going to give you a few numbers here. There are 65 million retailers and restaurateurs on the planet. Okay, so it's one of the largest addressable markets in the world. And so because the market is so big, a lot of players have basically are basically at different levels in the market. So if you look at Square and Shopify, they're really on the what we call the micro merchants. So they're the really the smallest SMBs. And out of the 65 million, there's about 59 million that are in the what we call micro merchants or very small SMBs. So we do the same things, but they do it for, you know, I, I call them mom and pop selling small, medium, large coffees or small, medium, large t-shirts, mainly from the garage. We work with more established SMBs, those that have a physical presence, those that, you know, have at least $500,000 of revenues a year. And you see it within the market segment. And, and for us, there's about 7 million. But even in that market, where there's about 6 to 7 million, we only have 170,000. So there's so much room to grow. And even though we're the global leader, and we operate in more than 100 countries, we are still, you know, very small in terms of market share. And when you joined the company in 2012 as chief revenue officer, what did you see in Lightspeed? What made you say, yep, this is a company that I want to be part of and I, I want to help execute on this mission? That's a very good question. So if you look at my career, I've loved disruption. <laughs> I like to be when there are big changes that are about to be. So I'm just going to give you a few uh, <laughs> You know, I was building internet databases in 96, you know, when they were calling it the, the World Wide Web. And what we were doing was aggregating content that we could sell online. Nobody was doing that at the time. Then in the, you know, early 2000s, I was working at doing XML databases, which was, we knew the web now had a ton of content. So I was building technology to help publish content online. Then I moved into online advertising in 2007 and, you know, Traditional advertising got completely disrupted with all the online advertising. And so I, all of this say, I love to be when I know there's going to be change. And my view was that retailers and restaurateurs hadn't changed the way they operate for hundreds of years. And my view was that it was the beginning of e-com and the online world meeting the offline world was going to do exactly what happened in the advertising space, which was it was going to become focused on consumer behavior across channels. And that's what was going to drive the success. So I joined Lightfeed going, okay, they're clearly one of the only vendors that are in the cloud that are, you know, really going into hospitality for SMBs. And I love that market, basically. And I knew, or I thought at the time that that would go through huge disruption, which of course has proven to be right. And I think also, especially with COVID now, it's even disrupted even more this industry. So I think again, going back to crossing the chasm and being there at the right time, I had a feeling that Lightspeed would take off because the retail and the hospitality landscape had to change. How do you get timing right like that? Do you have an internal process that you follow or you evaluate? Because it sounds like you've nailed timing several times in your career. It's funny. I, I have three things I look at, okay? And it's uh, pretty simple, basically. The first one is around timing. I try and figure out, is this the right time? Do I perceive there are going to be changes in the industry? And so as an example, when I was in the ad networking and we were analyzing the web and we were extracting semantics so that we could do contextual advertising. Okay. And in my view, I was like, you know, when you look at the cost per mill at the time or the cost per thousand, you know, I was like, 
the only way we can get a better revenue from the cost per thousand impressions is to go hyper-focused. So I think at Lightspeed, that was the first question. Is like, do I think there's going to be disruption? I was like, yeah, e-com is going up. Everybody's predicting the death of retail. I'm like, it's not going to die because everybody always predicts the death of something. And I was like, there's probably going to be this world where technology adoption is going to be key. And so that for me made it. The second question I always ask myself is, is the company funded to the level of the ambitions? <laughs> or is there a way we can get the funding to the level of the ambitions? And I'm going to give you a failure of mine. An example was Ixia, which was uh, this company doing the web. And we were building XML databases. And at the time, we were after disrupting Sybase and Oracle for the databases and saying, no, no, no we're going to be the XML database of the future. And unfortunately, you know, we had just got 10 million in funding. And, and there, I think the funding level was not to the level of our ambitions. So that's the second thing I always look at is, am I funded well enough to accomplish the ambition? And there, when I joined Lightspeed, they had just received funding from Excel that are the guys behind Facebook and Slack and all of that. And they had put $30 million in Lightspeed and Seed. And I was like, okay, so we've got a disruptive market. We've got the best investors in the world. That's the second tick. And then the third question I always ask myself is, is the market big enough? And I think that also goes a bit to crossing the chasm is like, you know, is the timing right? And is the market big enough for the timing? And going back to my XML database, uh, you know, we were just full of early adopters where we we're doing education instead of selling our software. So, and here in my mind, I was like, okay, is the market right? And in, I said to myself, well, e-com has evolved fast enough that I do think it's going to hit all the tech of e-com is going to hit the stores because that's the only way they're going to compete is they need a lot of data and analytics and insights to go forward. And I was like, and the market is huge, you know, 65 million retailers and restaurateurs. So that's how I call my decisions. And I often look at, do I have the right funding? Do I have the right timing? And do I have the right market size? And if those three normally align, that's when you can make magic. And if you reflect on the magic that you've made and you and the team have made and the success you've achieved, what do you think Lightspeed got right? I think we, and I say this in a very humble way, but I do believe it. I think we have always been ahead of the game and we've always been ahead of the trends because we listened really hard to our customers throughout the entire journey. And so giving you examples, you know, we were the first mobile iPad-based or iOS based in stores, you know, that's why, because we were the first, Apple wanted to sell hardware, they brought every customer to us. Then we were the first to be in the cloud, which means, you know, the first to not have a database underneath the counter. And I think that was the right move, even though we were very early on in the game, because now nobody wants to have physical databases under the counter. Then we were the first to do omnichannel, which means we were the first to say, no, it's not about e-com and offline, it's about channels. You need to be a platform that integrates both. And at the time, everybody's like, what are you saying? And we were like, no, we think that the, so I think we read the market really well throughout every one of our evolutions, which means that we were never on our back foot. And giving you an example that for me is the most concrete is, you know, when COVID hit, our competitors who were still just focusing on in-store, they almost all died. And we actually managed to acquire them for not too much money because we were the only ones to have online. So overnight, our customers went from selling in store to calling us and saying, hey, I want the e-com, I want the e-com fully integrated. And that's what rode kind of our success throughout COVID and that meant we thrived. So I think we were always, and now we have this unified commerce view, which is 
connecting suppliers, stores, and consumers and removing distributors, basically, between suppliers and stores and being at the core of this with data. And I think nobody else is doing this, but I'm certain that in three years from now, this is why we're going to be more successful than anybody else. So I think uh, just answering the question, I think we listen to customers. We know our industry inside out, which enables us to always be ahead of the game. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Are there any examples of when you were first and you were just too early and it didn't work out or you were early and it just caused a lot of pain? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, you don't have success without failure. So I could I could talk to you about our failures. The only, for me, the only goal in life is that you have less failure than you have success. But, you know, if you can learn and you can go fast. So I'll give you, I mean, I've, we started the R&D of Lightspeed. I'll give you a few where we were on on-premise and then the cloud hit and we're like, oh shit, man, we are in the wrong direction here. So I think the life of a company like ours is learn from your failures, pivot fast and go in the right direction or, or even omni-channel. The first we heard about, we talked about omni-channel was maybe two, three years too early. We even built our own e-com, <laughs> believe it or not, to realize two years later, it's like, this is not a market we're going to build. We're going to have to buy an e-com vendor and integrate it because we'll never be fast enough. So I think... I could cite many of them. We went into markets too early, you know, like we tried going into the UK when we hadn't scaled. So I think the story of any startup is try things, fail fast and pivot fast, you know? And so I think it's, um, and I keep saying this to everybody internally, because even today, you know, we're close to a billion in run rate and, you know, 3000 employees. Even today, if you want to make a difference, you need to be ambitious. You need to be ready to do things and fail fast and course correct. Oh, maybe the other one, the supplier network, the first version we did was completely flawed. We applied it to one vertical and we learned so much from it that then the second time we did it was absolutely outstanding. So I think it's a story of companies, this failure and adapting. And I think those who fail, the companies who fail to grow and there's two scenarios. I really see two scenarios. The first one is you're so scared to fail that you don't innovate fast enough and you become non-relevant. And the second one is you try things, but you become so enamored with your first trial that you refuse to see it's a failure and you basically burn to ashes without trying to make something work that will not work. And I think those are the two scenarios I think. And I, and I think those who succeed are those who have the two scenarios who have this, I'm going to try things, but I think you've got to kill the baby if you know it's not going to work and you need to start over and not be scared. And even at Lightspeed, just being very transparent, three years ago, we told the market, hey, we're going to build a new platform from scratch. And everybody's like, what? You're going to fail at this. This is the most ambitious. And, and I'm like, no, we're going to set, we're going to allocate enough people at it. We're going to put our best people. And I strongly believe that in two years, we'll have Two brand new products, even products are even better than the ones we have. And we went at it. And of course, we course corrected. But today, we, even a company our size, we just launched brand new products. And those are our new brand new products. And we are going to, over time, sunset the legacies that, that have given us the success we have today. So I think you've got to be daring and you've got to believe that you can reinvent yourself. 
But at the same time, when you do, if you see failure, you got to call it out, not be scared. And I see it so often as people got just go, because it's their baby, they refuse to accept that it's not going to work. And I think you have to accept it and move on. How many times has Lightspeed reinvented itself? And how many you know, kind of evolutions has the company been through, would you say? I think every year we have to reinvent ourselves. And some are tougher than others. And, you know, when I started, we were only doing retail. And like, hey, we have to do restaurant. That is a big. So we built a platform for restaurants. Then in the retail side, we said, oh, our e-com is not good. We got to reinvent this. Let's start over. And the I'm just giving you all the years. But every year was a, a quest. You got it there. And I think your strategy needs to remain very constant. Your mission needs to be very constant and nothing has changed. That's why I'm really proud that, you know, I'm 11 years in the company and the mission is exactly the same. The strategy is very much the same. But what we've done is over time, we've pivoted and we've made slight adjustments to optimize and, and enable us to go faster to accomplish the vision in a faster way, I guess. When it comes to product innovation, how do you decide when you should pursue M&A versus when you should build it in-house? It's going back to crossing the chasm. <laughs> do I have enough time and resources or will I be obsolete by the time I build what's on the market today? And so I'll give you examples. Like we built our payments from scratch. You know, we have one big payments engine that, you know, is a, we're now a payment facilitator. We work everywhere in the world, card present, card known. There was nothing out there. <laughs> so we said, okay, we're gonna have to invest ourselves. But, you know, often, Again, I think that's what makes a great company, Brett, is you got to be balanced. And I see a lot of founders that are obsessed by building everything themselves. And the harsh reality of technology is you cannot build everything yourself because you'll never, you'll never have the resources and the time and you'll never be fast enough to market. And then on the other side of the story, there are companies that all they do is, is basically acquire businesses and roll them in. And I think over time that becomes a spaghetti of a company, you know? So I think the balance is in between. And I think the question, it starts from the customer. Here's a category that we think we should be in because our customers are telling us that there's a lot of value of having this integrated with the core platform. And then from there, you have to look at the two options very openly. Buy, who are the players in the market? Let's go. And actually, as you go through this buying, this assessment, can I buy? You will learn so much about the category because you'll get to know everything from all the competitors on the market and you'll get to, to see, do you see the right fit? And then there's technology people, there's a number of criteria. And then if that is not successful, you'd say, well, I'm going to build on the building. You've now created a jumpstart because you, you understand the market inside out. And sometimes you have to not be dogmatic about it. You know, and I, I think dogma is the, the killer here. You have to be truly open to both scenarios. And then you make a decision. And scenario A is I buy and scenario B is I build. And you have to really look at what is the true cost and timing of building. And you have to look at the dynamics on the market. So I'll give you an example, kitchen display. I don't know if you, you know this. There's a lot of technology now that's going into kitchens inside of restaurants. And it used to be printers and now people are, they want to have kitchen displays that are AI driven, super smart machines that enable the chef basically to know what to prepare when so that the dish arrives just in time at the table, okay? When you have you know multiple people at the table, everybody needs to be served at the same time. So here we went to the market, we scouted the market, we looked, there's no, we found one that was functionally very rich, 
But then we looked at the code base and like, oh God, that thing is not going to evolve. So we ended our, our scouting going, okay, how much would it take to build? And, you know, it was a reasonable time. And we said, okay, forget the buy. We're building this one. That's what we did with payments. That we did with kitchen display. We did it, of course, with Omnichannel. We did it with our core retail platforms. There are others where e-com is a good example. You know, we were like, okay, we need something as good as Shopify because that's the minimum standard right now. How long would it take for us to build this? And, you know, the teams came back with uh, three years and a half. And I'm like, yeah, but if it's going to take three years and a half, by the time we get there, the market is going to be in a completely different spot. So we'll never have the right timing to get there. So then I was like, okay, let's, let's scout the markets. And somebody, the markets, we came back going, hey, there's this amazing company called Equid. The code base is brand new. It's truly headless. It's outstanding. And the price is not that bad. And we're like, okay, let's go buy them. And so I think you have to, you have to not be dogmatic, be very religious, and be very open-minded into the two scenarios. And I think, yeah, just be open to really do the work for the two scenarios. And we talked about what the company got right and how you were able to really dominate the market in the way that you have been. I want to ask about you personally. So what do you think your superpower is? Do you have like one skill that you're just the best in the world at? I don't know. You probably would have to ask the team, but I, I'm, I'm going to give a few few guesses here. I think my blend of product and very good go-to-market means that I'm a very good sounding board to all the people who work for me. And I think they see me as somebody who, who truly is a good sounding board to figuring out the blend of go-to-market and product. Because that, at the end of the day, that's what makes a company or breaks a company. I think that's one. I think the second one is I'm full of energy. You know, I go into a room and I leave and everybody comes out energized and excited. And yeah, I, I think I bring people to a spot where there is a belief. You know, it starts with belief. Do you believe? And, you know, I go back to the early days of Lightspeed. I used to tell everyone, we're going to be public. We're going to be a billion dollar company and we're going to get there. And, and we are here today. But I've never doubted. And I, I think people, I'm good at getting people to believe this. And so getting the right talent in the company to work hard to make this a reality. And I think the third one is I'm, I'm a fighter. You know, I was not that good at school. I was actually pretty poor. I've learned to fail so many times when I was a kid that nothing can destabilize me. And I think that's a good thing, you know, when you're a company that, that has ups and downs and growing our sizes, people look to me because they know that I will, I will forget very rapidly the failure and rebuild <laughs> myself very rapidly into a winning position. So I think those are the three that people enjoy the most, I think, about working with me. And something else I also want to ask about is the IPO. So you know, we have a lot of founders who are listening in. We have a lot of early employees at early stage startups listening into the show. Everyone there dreams of IPO day and taking a company public. Can you take us behind the scenes? What was the IPO process like and what was IPO day like for you? You know, so I did a lot of things, but I always ended up selling the businesses. And and I, yeah, of course, like every entrepreneur, I wanted a to ring the bell, you know, and I wanted to, this was, yeah, it was probably the biggest achievement of my career was taking a company from very, very small to IPO. Yeah. What was it like? It was thrilling. So it was, so, you know, you do your free roadshows after you do your roadshows. I guarantee any founder on this call that you've never worked as hard in your life when you do an IPO, you do the roadshows, which is the most exhausting thing. It's almost like the biggest drain, <laughs> you know, you do probably 15 to 20 investor calls a day. At night, you're in planes, you go from one city to the next. It's, it's like there's no break for roughly six to 10 days. I was super proud because we were 
we were so over. I mean, I think we were, I think it was more than 10 times oversubscribed. So everybody wanted our stock. Everybody was buying in. So you have this great intensity. And then at the end of the roadshow, you basically end up in a, in a room with bankers and they tell you, you know, and in our case, they told you, look, this was one of the most successful IPOs they'd ever seen. And, you know, we're Canadian, so not that many tech IPOs in Canada. And even though we did a US double listed US and Canadian IPO, and then they tell you, wow, you guys are, you're going public tomorrow. And they're like, here it is. It's done. You know, you get to distribute the book. You get to privilege the investors you like the most. And then it's kind of surreal The you go out with your exec team that night, you know, and everybody's feeling electric. You, you have the message leaks out. The world knows you're going public tomorrow because you have to tell them. And then you have everybody in your entourage, I think, basically calls you all night and you're just sinking in all this, you know, and you're like, I think it's a great moment of pride. And then the next morning you go out there, you ring the bell, everybody takes pictures. You're, and we had a, you know, the first day, I think the pop was something like 40 or 50%. And overnight you, we all end up, you know, millionaires and, but I don't even think that's the reward. The reward is, wow, you know, and a lot of the coworkers that have been with us for the early days, we've always had that as a dream. And that's what brought us to work so hard to be this leader and to, to make it happen. And then that day ends and the next day is uh, <laughs> almost business as usual. You're going back to, you're already as good as your last quarter and the pressure is on, you know? And what can I say? I think I'm very proud of everything we've done. We've now been now public for four years. We're still, you know, still growing at 30. I think last year was 33% growth year over year organically. So still a very high growth business. But maybe one thing to take away is once it happens, you have to spend a ton of time with your people. And here I used a climbing analogy. I said, okay, the IPO is uh, Kilimanjaro. Now we want to get to the Everest. So to find a new way to bring people to the next mission, you know, I think is, is the most important because the IPO is not the end. It's the beginning for us. It was the beginning of funding the company to the ability or to the level of the ambition. And so after the IPO, there's a bit of a, you know, post IPO kind of, oh, what's next now? And we had to spend a ton of time to rebuild on, okay, that's the next step we're going after. Cool. I got everybody, everybody to gun again, because if not, you end up in a state where everybody's like, okay, I've done my job here. I'm going to go and do it again somewhere else. And I think, so there's a lot of intensity that comes after that. And if a founder comes up to you and says, hey, JP, I'm thinking about starting a tech company, you know, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to them? I would tell them, look, I just want to be clear with my views here. I would tell them, you know, the last 12 years have been the best years ever in technology. Regardless, it was growth at all costs. You would get funding for uh, just a little slide deck. The money would come in easily. You could burn through the Yahoo and everything would be okay. And I always was very uncomfortable with that because even Lightspeed, you know, our first five years, we were profitable. We didn't get any funding, you know? So I'm a strong believer that the business fundamentals need to be right before you get funding. And so I would tell them, great. Of course, I would tell them, look, ensure that you have a big enough market, a good understanding of the product fit. And if you don't, continue working hard to get that product fit and get a few customers and run it in a lean way you know, run it in a lean way for the first few years, because the least you dilute yourself in the first, you know, the most expensive for any company in the world is the first few years in terms of dilution for a founder. So I would tell them to try and postpone that as much as possible to try and get to a model where you can go as long as you can 
without burning too much and without diluting yourself too much. Because if you do that right, then you'll end up like Lightfeed, where we did an IPO and we were not that diluted as a company because we managed it really well in the high burn, which are the first, you know, the first five years of the company. You mentioned there in the list of superpowers, energy. And as we've gone through this interview, I can feel the energy. You're clearly very energized and you know, it's captivating. It really you know, pulls you in and gets you excited. And you know, it's just a lot of fun speaking with someone who's so high energy. Do you ever have days where you don't have that type of energy? And do you ever have days where you just lack that motivation and, and drive maybe? Or do you just have it naturally every day you wake up? So I thank my parents for this. But a few things about me. I don't sleep a lot. I need very few hours to be up. And I will have an off day here and then, but I tend to rebuild very quickly this energy. And I think I need to sometimes tame it down because not everybody has that energy. So I, I've learned over time that sometimes I need to bring it down a few notches because not everybody, you know, wants that energy and, and not everybody reacts the same way to it. So I think it's more the opposite. I try and tame it when I want to intentionally in, in environments where I know, like as an example, at our board meeting, I try and you know, <laughs> stay a little bit more contained. I've been, uh, you know, uh, one of the board members of Lightspeed since the early days. And so there are scenarios where I try and actually bring it down because it's always there. And what motivates you and you know, drives you today? So you have the house in, in the south of France. You know, what's motivating you not to just go and sit on the beach <laughs> and relax? Why are, why are you, you know, doing I, podcasts like this? Why are you working so hard managing 3,000 people? Like, what's motivating you? I'm a... Uh, hyperactive, maybe that's another way to put me. So I think I have this dream that one day I will you know, chill a bit. And, but I think I realized after a few days chilling that I have to do something. So I think what drives me, I just, I just like, I think it's a game. I think we're in a game. I, I want to win the game. I like winning. And I, I never see this as something tough or annoying. I just enjoy it. And, and you know, if you look at it historically, I'm normally a five to six-year guy in every company I've led. And at Lightspeed, I still love it because, and ultimately it's because I love our market and the market is so big that I have so much more. And, you know, I, I get, I maybe answers the previous question. I get bored when, like, don't ask me to run a low-growth, EBITDA-focused, operationally-focused company. It's at that. I don't get excitement. I need to get excitement by feeling that we're making a difference and that we are, we are in a market where I can have an impact. And so what drives me, I mean, I, I, Lightspeed was still the early days. I, I, I mean, I know this company is going to grow forever because the market is so big. You know, I, I started with that. I said, look, we, it's a market where there's at least, you know, three, four, five million restaurateurs that are, and retailers in our addressable market. And we're now a billion dollars in run rate, but we only have 170,000 customers. So it's not even a material market size. So there's so much we should be doing still. And so that excites me, you know, opening new markets, opening new offices. And I think the other thing that excites me, frankly, is I love growing people. And I, maybe I'll, I'll quote him, you won't be, uh, you won't be too happy, but our, our chief legal officer, you know, I, I love to build human connections with people. So he was over at my house the other night, we're eating the two of us. And he's like, I don't know why, but at some point he said, you know, JP, you should be so proud. Do you know how many millionaires you have made? <laughs> <laughs> just at light feed. And I think about that. I'm like, wow. So I've had an impact on so many people. And it, it makes me proud that I've built people that came out of school into being amazing leaders. I just enjoy human interactions and winning. And I have this at light feed. And so that's why I'm still so excited by all of this. Amazing. I love it. 
Well, JP, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. If any founders listening in want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? They can follow me online. I post quite a bit. I can, you know, I'm on a lot of the social media platforms. And if they want to talk to us, I mean, just reach out to Lightspeed and I will, uh, I'm normally pretty good at, uh, you know, returning. Just reach out to me, even if you want on LinkedIn, then I'm pretty good at returning messages. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time Thanks. to share your perspective and share these lessons that you've learned. This has been such a fun conversation. And like I said, full of energy. So I know our audience is going to love it. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Brett. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye. All right.